And it wasn't really till college and some early psychedelic experiences that I had, um, specifically with a mushroom chocolate in junior year, I was at Harvard. And I'd rejected my, you know, I wasn't very spiritual at that time, um, but was also pretty dissatisfied with the kind of reductionist vision of, that was being kind of downloaded via biology. And, you know, human consciousness is just another adaptive trait, not that big a deal. You know, I was like, well, you know, I think uh, there might be something more going on here. And, and I remember on, in, in the mushroom, just having the mushroom chocolate, um, that just kind of was flipping down on my arm and thinking like, wow, you know, what does it mean like at a quantum level? Like, I'm not different from the world. Like at a quantum energetic level, it's just one continuum. continuum. Hmm. And when I eat and I poop, like the world's flowing through me, energy's pouring through me. And I'm not eating the same stuff like month to month. I'm like different blood, I'm different stuff. And I'm not gonna even be here in that long. And I'm like part of a way bigger reality process and living, the world is alive and I'm just part of it. And just like really had this like kind of first unity experience and like kind of like uh, what I didn't quite associate at the time with my granddad's vision, but in hindsight, it was like one of the first, you know, setting me on my path to really understanding what my granddad was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking about all one, you know, like, yeah. You are listening to the Releaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from David Bronner, the Chief Cosmic Officer at Dr. Bronner's. And on today's episode, we dive deep into David's experiences that have reconfigured his perspective of how business can be operated. So fasten those seatbelts and give it up for the real David Bronner. Enjoy. Four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is David Bronner, the CEO or the Cosmetic Engagement Officer at Dr. Bronner's. David, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me and, and Cosmic Engagement Officer. Did so, I say cosmetic today? Yeah, that's right. That's all right. I mean, it makes sense. We're, cosmic, cosmic. Yeah. Why we're, is it cosmic? We're cosmically engaging with our cosmetic uh, products. Uh, you know, aside from soap, we actually got lip balms and lotions and all, all kinds of cosmetics. So, it makes sense. Uh, it, okay, now that makes more sense. Now, why is it cosmic then? Cosmic. Well, I guess you know that kind of gets into the origin story. Uh, so, that was my my granddad's you know, passion project was. Um, was a unite spaceship Earth lightning like in a new birth, the you know across religious and ethnic divides, and um, you know it was uh, felt urgently called in uh, a nuclear armed world that at the next Holocaust, if we didn't realize our transcendent unity, um, and that all the faith traditions at their heart are speaking about the one true religion of love, and um, that if we didn't realize that and continued to demonize and disrespect each other, and uh, that the next Holocaust would, would we would all perish. Mm. And, um, you know, I just had this, you know, basic cosmic vision of peace on earth, uh, you know, living sustainably in harmony with nature. So I would say like kind of the most in my generation, uh, you know, my brother's 50, 50 with me, Mike Bronner, he's a president. Um, I'm kind of maybe a little more tapped in on my granddad's wavelength. Um, so when I promoted my brother to president, he promoted me to a cosmic engagement officer. So CEO, yeah. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so my granddad, you know, he, um, he, uh, his granddad, so my great, great grandfather first began, uh, making soap in a small, uh, Jewish, uh, home in Laupheim, a Southern German town. 
um, and in 1858, and my um, granddad's dad, my great grandfather, um, Bertolt, uh, he and his and, and and two of his brothers had expanded the family enterprise to one of the largest soap manufacturers in in Germany, and were based in Heilbronn, and uh, we had a we had a, had a big factory, and we're making all the liquid soaps in the washrooms throughout Germany on the Zeppelins, uh, flying around. Um, and, you know, my granddad came of age in, in the twenties. He was, um, apprenticed and became a master soap maker. Um, and when he joined the family enterprise formally, um, he was clashing with his dad a lot in his late twenties. Um, my granddad was very Zionist, very activist. My, my, his, his dad and uncles were like, you know, stop mixing politics and soap, you know, just, you know, keep to the lower profile. And, um, you know, and, and my granddad just kind of out of the generational clash with his dad came over to the States in Chicago in 1929 at the age of 21. And this wasn't the, the eventual dimensions of fascism and Hitler were, were not apparent at the time. It was, it was more, um, it was, it was just more of wanting to find his own path. And, um, but it, he, he set himself as a, up as a consultant to the U S soap industry, like the P and G's of the world and helped design factories and launch products and um, uh, met his wife, Paula, my dad's mom, um, had three kids. Um, and, but with the rise of Hitler, uh, was increasingly desperate to get his family out. And his two sisters got out. One, uh, Louise, uh, Lottie got out in 36 and ended up in a kibbutz in Israel. Um, well, then Palestine, now Israel. And, um, and Louisa got out in 38, right before the close of borders. And she became a professor of German at UMass Boston and wrote poetry in Hebrew, German, and English, very much on my granddad's wavelength of, of unity and, and realizing our, you know, sister and brotherhood across, across cultural divides. Um, really, really amazing woman. And, um, and then his parents, like a lot of bourgeois Jews, thought they were going to write out the madness um, stayed until it was too late. The factory was Aryanized in 1940, and they were deported and killed shortly after. Wow. Um, and at the same time, his wife, uh, Paula, my dad's mom, died, got sick and died um, when my dad was two. And so this is all happening in like the early 40s. So this immense personal tragedy for my granddad. And, um, and his response to this was, you know, somehow in the midst of this immense tragedy was having these like mystical experiences that and, and realizations that at the at, that you know that all the faith traditions at their heart are, are pointing at this transcendent mystery that we are all children of and that you know every every man and woman prays to god in his or her own language and there's no language that she doesn't understand and felt urgently called to go promote this vision of peace um, to the world he felt in a in a nuclear armed world we we're gonna all kill ourselves if we didn't realize this he was going around the, the, the country lecturing and he was selling his, by that time, old fashioned soaps on the side. And because in post-World War II era, it was better living through mm -hmm. chemistry. We were um, transitioning all kinds of industry to petrochemicals and synthetic chemistry. And, you know, we had synthetic fertilizers, plastics, like, you know, personal care. So natural soaps were out of fashion. It was all about synthetic petrochemical surfactants and moisturizers. And my granddad early on saw the danger of this transition in that, you know, he came, he brought kind of the German green ethic with him uh, of living simply in, in harmony and was a real ecological visionary. And, um, 
but he, you know, primarily he was all about his message and word got out that it was this guy with this really good soap, this really good soap and people were coming to, to get the soap and not hearing what he had to say. And that's when he started to download his message on the, all of our uh, labels of our soap. So our labels are pretty famous. So I've been like 3000 words of my granddad's philosophy, but it's pretty, pretty genius. Cause you figure forget a magazine going to the bathroom and he's got you. Um, and it wasn't really till the 60s and the rise of the counterculture that the soap really took off. Um, a whole generation basically dropped out. Uh, you know, like this is the era of Silent Spring, Rachel Carlson. All the pesticides were killing songbirds. It was um, just widespread awakening. The environmental movement um, mm. uh, got off the ground. Um, that, you know, we're living through the sixth great extinction event. Ecosystems are in collapse. We cannot be living like we are, like our whole capitalist consumer society with no thought to the environmental and social impacts. Like this is, you know, obviously leading us off the climate change cliff. And, you know, you know, he was, you know, so with this generation in sixties and then this war machine that wouldn't stop, you know, here, so, so this whole generation, you know, they, they're, they're looking for more authentic, simple, natural products. And, you know, here's a soap that's concentrated about a great way you can wash your hair, your dishes, your dog by the side of the river and not worry about it. And a really cool message of peace on the label. And that's when the soaps really took off. Um, and then with the rise of the health food movement, um, you know, my granddad basically tracked that in our soap. Um, he, he, he ran it as a nonprofit religious organization. The IRS disagreed with his tax exempt status and we reorganized, we were in bankruptcy and uh, and reorganized as a for-profit. And actually that's when my dad and mom and uncle entered the picture. So I grew up in, in Glendale in a, a suburb of LA. Um, my, my dad went to the Navy. So my granddad wasn't the best father. He basically was parked his three kids in a series of foster homes. Um, and why he went around on his, you know, cut on his mission to save the world. And he checked in, you know, pretty regular and, financially supported them but was basically absent and my dad um when he was 17 went and joined the navy served eight years came back out and was working with my my granddad but it was really fractious and um, my dad would oversee the soap manufacturer at a chemical specialty firm in la and um when my granddad um decided to move down to escondido um uh in in north county san diego um, my dad stayed up and he eventually became the head of operations at this other chemical specialty uh, company and, uh, and continued to oversee the bulk manufacture of the soap, which he shipped down to Escondido, but then also developed a whole bunch of other products like firefighting foam for structure and forest fires, and then a version of the foam for Hollywood. So me and my brother grew up blasting foam on trees to make it look like snow. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and just and then my dad, when my granddad got sick and he was paying all these back taxes because all these bad advisors, my dad and uncle and my mom uh, kind of entered the picture and, and righted Dr. Bronner's, got out of bankruptcy, put it on sound financial footing as a for profit. But really, we have that nonprofit kind of DNA to the core of our, our mission. We were a social enterprise before the term existed. Um, and, you know, and, and growing up, like me and my brother, um, you know, my, um, my granddad was a very intense guy. And for him, it was very important that his grandkids understood the message and that, that we must unite spaceship earth. We're all one or none. And, you know, this stuff was sailing way over our heads, you know, we're like, okay, you know, and, um, 
uh, you know, I knew he was just coming from the mountaintop 24-7. And it wasn't really till college and some early psychedelic experiences that I had, um, specifically with a mushroom chocolate in junior year, I was at Harvard. And I'd rejected my, you know, I wasn't very spiritual at that time, um, but was also pretty dissatisfied with the kind of reductionist vision of, that was being kind of downloaded via biology. And, you know, human consciousness is just another adaptive trait, not that big a deal. You know, I was like, well, you know, I think uh, there might be something more going on here. And, and I remember on, in, in the mushroom, just having the mushroom chocolate, um, that just kind of was looking down at my arm and thinking like, wow, you know, what does it mean? Like at a quantum level, like I'm not different from the world, like at a quantum energetic level, it's just one continuum. continuum. Hmm. And when I eat and I poop, like the world's flowing through me, energy's pouring through me. And I'm not eating the same stuff like month to month. I'm like different blood, I'm different stuff. And I'm not going to even be here in that long. And I'm like part of a way bigger reality process and living, the world is alive and I'm just part of it. And just like really had this like kind of first unity experience and like kind of like uh, what I didn't quite associate at the time with my granddad's vision, but in hindsight, it was like one of the first, you know, setting me on my path to really understanding what my granddad was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking about we're all one, you know, like, yeah. And, and it wasn't really till after college and I was in Amsterdam and in college, I kind of retired from alcohol culture and just realized that cannabis was like a way better vibration and just being with my friends and playing music and, you know, alcohol is this place, but, um, you know, I, you know, just really was really appreciating just the higher vibration that cannabis, um, held, you know, when responsibly approached and used. And, um, so Amsterdam, of course, in 95 was kind of the Mecca, and went went to Amsterdam and just really, really, um, I mean, it's such an open, tolerant society. And I met people um, that were facing like 10 years of life, like beautiful, the most beautiful, gentle hippies, vegetarians you'd ever meet. And they're facing 10 years of life. They go back to the U.S. and they had, they had formed a church in Arkansas in 1993 with cannabis as a sacrament to make a First Amendment um, constitutional challenge. And they'd gotten broken up by the feds and a lot of them were in jail, you know, and I was just like, man, what kind of country is doing this? Are these beautiful people are going to be locked up for the rest of their lives and just like really kind of woke up to the drug war in, mm-hmm. in large part being a war on cannabis as a proxy of going after the counterculture, like that whole cultural split in the sixties. And it was basically a proxy for the authorities to, to go after the, 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 you know, the counterculture. And before that, it was racist policy to go after Mexican and African-Americans from, you know, back when marijuana was first made illegal in the 30s. Um, you know, just really getting, I guess, my political awakening. And, um, you know, that this is the sacrament of my people. This is helping us be our better, you know, better, higher vibrating selves. And, um, you know, the, you know, this is so ridiculous that, that we're, you know, wasting so much law enforcement, taxpayer resources, with something that can be so helpful mm. to helping us, you know, be better people. And, you know, and then in the same time frame, I had some even more intense psychedelic experiences and, and really died or experienced the light and the love at the heart of reality that my grandma was been talking about. And I hadn't understood at all what he was talking about, but all of a sudden I'm like, Holy moly, this is what he's, all the faith traditions are pointing at this. It's like beyond anything. And, you know, it's a religion gets problematic when it takes its beliefs Serious, like it makes idols and says, you know, your God's not my God, you know, that kind of stuff. But when it's open, these are all paths to the, to the heart. I mean, it's all about the one true religion of love and, 
and that was what my granddad was all about. And um, so, yeah, so it wasn't like a straight path from there to, to Dr. Bronner's, but, you know, more or less within a couple of years, um, you know, realized that if a company like Dr. Bronner's would offer me a job, I'd go for it a second and had not wanted to work for my dad, just like my dad, you know, didn't want to work for his granddad, my granddad didn't want to work for his, you know, you know but I had gotten over that and like, wow, you know, I can work with my dad, this is amazing. And, and, and it was luckily I made that decision because it was right before my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And this is 98. And my, my granddad had just died in 97. Uh, on the same day, my, my daughter was born on March 7th, 97. And then my dad, um, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer shortly after. But luckily I'd already said, hey, I'm ready to come in. And so I got an amazing year with my dad. Um, and then he, he passed in June of 98. And... But shortly before he died, he oversaw, along with my mom and Uncle Ralph, my mom, Trudy, who's a CFO at Bronner still, and is amazing. My brother likes to say she, our, our mom still gives us our allowance. But uh, um, they oversaw the what was then uh, effectively one-third of our entire worth or value was in the form of a 1,000 acres in East County, San Diego. Mm. And my granddad had some grandiose visions of, of, of reforesting the land and bringing rains to the semi-arid region. And it wasn't like super practical. And my dad, against the counsel of a lot of our advisors, who were saying, no, you gotta like, we gotta sell that land to cover the estate taxes for my granddad. You know, my my dad, you know, was like not adamant, no, we can afford to do this and we're gonna do it. And we gave that land to the Boys and Girls Club of San Diego. And, um, you know, and it really set the example for me and my brother, like, this is what we do. You know, if we mm. can, you know, we gotta be responsible custodians of the business and make sure we're running a you know, profitable, sustainable, successful enterprise, but anything we don't need for the business, we're going to give it to the charities and the causes we believe in. And we implemented a five to one compensation cap. So I don't make any more than five times our lowest paid position. And we give, uh, basically give all all our money that we don't need for the business to the um, causes we believe in. And when I joined in 90, you know, basically 98, when I stepped up, um, we did 5 million um, and last year we crossed 130 million and we're able to give seven and a half million dollars away to charity. Um, so that's like, you know, basically kind of running it and, and we're, you know, now we're organized as a benefit corp and we just very much, um, run it in, try to honor both my granddad and my dad, um, examples, you know, so my dad, you know, in a way kind of closing the loop with honoring the youth mentoring programs that really helped him when he was a kid. And, um, and my dad was very much about like practical, like family and community, not the cosmic vision. And, um, and, you know, whereas my granddad was all 24 seven on the, on the cosmic tip. So I think me and my brother, we really try to kind of honor both of them. And, um, you know, like, what can you do practically in the world to make the world better? I mean, it's great to want to have peace on earth, but you know, how do we get there? And, um, so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, some of the most important things we've done is take responsibility for our supply chains, um, realizing that as cool as what we do here in San Diego is only like less than 10% of our impact as far as the people and the land involved. It's uh, the farmers and the workers growing our coconuts and olives, turning that into oil. You know, there's so much more land-based impact. There's so many more workers and farmers involved. And you know, making sure they're getting a fair price and making sure they're farming in a way that really takes care of their land and isn't like ripping the fertility out of the soil and poisoning the farm workers' bodies with pesticides. And, 
Um, so yeah, so so that's uh, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm maybe going a, a little far afield here, but um, yeah, we're you know really trying to honor my my granddad and my dad in everything we do. Um, so yeah, I guess that's basically the story of where we're at. We'll talk about uh, the cosmos and cosmic uh, engagement officer, man. That's that's some crazy stuff right there. I mean, what do you think that is though? When you think of like the transfer of, of generations, the transfer of wealth, the transfer of emotions, the transfer of energy. What do you think that is that's in you, that's telling you to make these ethical decisions that your grandfather and your father had set forth? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the soul, you know, it's tapped in and that's, I think, trying to be in true, true to your own soul is kind of the, the game. And, um, you know, it's got the wisdom and it's tapped in with the ancestors. I mean, I feel in a way closer to my dad now than when he was alive. Uh, and, uh, you know, just grown a lot since since he died. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, thank God for my parents. I think they really helped develop a real conscience in me and my brother and sister. Um, and, um, you know, a real sense of responsibility and family and um, taking care of people. So like, I credit my parents a lot. And then, um, yeah, and then I guess the, you know, psychedelic plant medicine allies, I mean, these are really important. Um, you know, that's in part what I've dedicated my life to is responsible integration of psychedelic therapy. I feel, uh, you know, if you look at indigenous cultures that have um, ceremonial use of peyote or ayahuasca or iboga, you know, they, they approach these medicines with a lot of reverence, a lot of care. Um, and they can just be very, very transformative and really help us, um, access, um, you know, deeper levels of ourself, you know, get in touch with our deep soul and really, um, help kind of reset self-destructive patterns of thought and behavior, you know, like, you know, add it, you know, addiction, depression, anxieties, a lot of these epidemics at Western pharma has very little, uh, is, is not being very successful at addressing, these more indigenous medicines and are have amazing potential and um and can really help activate the you know getting us in touch with the love and and the ethics at the heart you know earth care you know love of one another and you know custodianship of earth you know just really connecting us with nature so yeah well, this, this unifying message, you know, like one faith, you know, the, the everything that was printed on the bottles, that the whole message that your grandpa was uh, preaching to people during that that time, is this, and obviously it's passed on to you, is this, I mean, that's just real. I'm just trying to think about this. Help me out here. Is that something that's like inherent when we think about leadership? Is this something that is inherent in you? Is it learned or is it something that, it's just like in your unconscious and you just haven't impacted yet until you had had, you know, an experience like that. Uh, yeah, man, I did. I, well, well, well asked, well put. And it's both, you know, I think um, definitely, I think ancestral wisdom and presence is, is a factor for sure. And, you know, thank you so much, you know, grandpa, my dad. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely in my unconscious, you know, and generational trauma, the Holocaust, all that, you know, like um, it's, uh, you know, the fires of the Holocaust were behind my granddad. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't the best dad, but he was doing the best he could with the immense tragedy he was facing. 
you know, dad, my dad did the best he could. Hopefully I'm doing the best I can. You know, we're just trying to like elevate the vibration, process that trauma that's coming down along with the gifts, kind of get that complex karmic inheritance of, you know, like the good and the bad. And um, luckily in my case, I think it was like a lot more good than bad. And um, yeah, but you know, I think definitely peers, I don't want to, you know, also wanted to shout out like, there's a lot of other very influential people in my life and, and examples in, in business, socially responsible business, Guayaquil, uh, the Yerba Mate company. Um, they're, uh, they're pretty much now distributed in 7-Eleven and everywhere. So it's like the yellow, bright yellow cans. Um, but it's all a fair trade organic Yerba Mate, which is like the green tea grown in South America. And they went to market in partnership with the Guayaquil tribe and I think Paraguay and enable them to sustain their livelihood in the rainforest and grow the yerba mate sustainably and, and make it so that the, it was more productive than chopping the, the forest down and are basically you know engaged in rainforest preservation and traditional livelihoods of, of the tribe and um you know just really woke the consciousness like hey you know uh, i don't know like we were buying coconut oil and olive oil on price and spec like everyone else from brokers with no transparency or visibility to where it's coming from. We had no idea who the farmers were, or what kind of conditions it was. And that's like the race to the bottom around the world. I mean, it's because we're being unconscious about what we're purchasing that that just incentivizes huge, you know, multinational companies that go set up plantations in the most uh, countries with the most lax social and environmental regulation, which is lowest cost of production. And that's what's ruining the earth. So, you know, really penetrating that um, situation and, and setting up direct trading relationships with our farmers around the world. For coconut oil, it's a, it's a, we have a sister company in Sri Lanka that produces coconut oil in partnership with a thousand farmers. Um, it grew out of a tsunami relief project. You know, all the oil comes from primarily from Palestinian farmers on in the West Bank, but the balance from the Israeli side, half from a Jewish family farm and half from an Arab Christian project. So there's Muslim, Christian, Jewish, olive oil in our soap. It's really resonating with all one message. Um, palm oil is a very destructive ingredient, the way it's generally farmed. Um, we're showing how you can do it in a really sustainable, regenerative way. Um, but uh, but anyways, but the, just, just the example, there's this other, you know, there's just people who have really shown the way, like, hey, why don't you think about this? This is how you can do it better. And um, so I'm always learning and, and just, you know, just, you know, there's just people who are really setting good examples and people showing up at the right time in life, just with the right message. And sometimes I'm a hard learner. Sometimes I get it more quickly, but yeah, I think, um, you know, but just, just with the, the fundamental ethic, like, you know, how do you leverage business to be a force of positive social change, um, you know, versus a part of the problem. And, um, you, you know, it's basically both. It's both what's driving the driving us off the climate change cliff and it's the solution. You know, if we can just, like, be conscious about how we're running our business and make it benefit society as a whole, um, you know, I think we can, we can do it. Well, you said you're learning. I mean, as am I and as I think everyone else is. And I think there's a big misconception. I always ask people, you know, what is your definition of a real leader? And, you know, the ones I really 
respect to the ones that uh, embody the concerted effort of like, like, like you mentioned, the timing, the other people that are involved, because that's all this is. It's the right timing. It's the right people. It's the right things that and the conscious decisions that we make and, and the learning. It's it's everything combined. And it's very hard to describe. That's why I don't think there's one answer. But I was go go for it. Oh, I, you know, I was just going to say one of my top talents really is to know something well enough to know who can do it way better. And, uh, you know, and like kind of recruit them on as, you know, just key allies and, you know, just help, uh, you know, inspire the team, but just, you know, also respecting and delegating, you know, and just have, having a real complimentary skill set uh, to, to help uh, take us to the next level. Well, you're yeah. thinking about regenerative soils. We've talked about fair trade by giving people fair wages to provide for them and their families. Um, a lot of things that we don't think about consciously uh just like plastic waste our pollution and i think we're at this like this interregnum this 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 change of reigns this change of times change of cultures where the cost of capitalism just can't be comfortably ignored anymore people are waking up like you said the woke culture of understanding where their products come from understanding the impact that they're having as consumers where do you think this is going in years to come and do you think at one point while you're still alive that other uh, companies like yourselves competitors as yourselves will adopt the same principles um yeah you know i guess i'm cautiously optimistic um that um you know that there's some macro trends uh you know i think the millennial generation coming up you know is i mean obviously it's a very diverse cohort of people but you know like there's i think a lot um uh, seeking authenticity and realness and products that don't go to hell and back uh you know before they get to you and you know like i you know like awareness that climate change is a you know we have to tackle this if we have a shot on earth um and yeah i mean i think you know a big part of that is you know transitioning our agricultural systems that covers one third of the earth's surface and generally in a totally destructive way and making that you know how do we farm and produce our food and our fiber and ingredients for soap and everything else in a way that's you know regenerates nature or mimics nature um and is regenerative and isn't dependent on a huge amount of synthetic poisonous chemicals um, that, you know, huge carbon footprints, um, you know, eating way less animals and, you know, and, and, you know, I'm personally vegan for over 20 years, but I, I respect high animal welfare pasture-based operations. And, you know, I think so long as we like dramatically reduce the population of livestock, get them out of their cages and these ethical environmental disasters, integrate them back into our farming ecosystem, um, and, uh, you know, if you look at a wild ecosystem, there's no synthetic inputs. It's fully self-regenerating in forest, for example, um, no synthetic inputs, a, a sustainable balance of animal and plant life. You know, how do we replicate that in our farming ecosystem? Um, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, just as people get more conscious in that dimension and then, you know, integrate our, our plant medicines and psychedelic allies, um, you know, set good examples. It's like companies set good examples for us. We're trying to set good examples for the next wave of entrepreneurs coming up. Um, you know that hey, we're you know we don't prosper if society as a whole is not prospering. Um, you know that ethic. So I don't know. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. It's not a. It's not going to happen quickly. But I'm hopeful. Like 
guess there's a film in Australia. I was just down in Australia, and there's a film called 2040. I haven't seen it yet, um, but I guess it's about a vision of, like, if we do X, Y, Z, you know, kind of all the things we know we should be doing. If we get after them, you know, it's kind of like painting a picture. You know, we totally decarbonize our economy, transform our agricultural landscape, uh, you know, pivot, you know, away, you know, get after public transit, you know, just totally. Yeah. Get totally. after all the things we know we should be doing, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's going to be a great uh, transition to this is I was just about to say is like, you know, it's the 20, well, what is 2020 near sight and far sight? What's the near sight leadership? What's the far sighted leadership? So when you're, when you're talking about the pastures, we're talking about non GMO, things like that. What decisions are we going to make today? that are going to impact tomorrow. So I got a couple questions for you, David, if you, if you will. Yeah. You use non-GMO products. You also just talked about the the, the you know the welfare of animals and say farmings. At that time when those were being made, I think it was Borlov Borlog uh, who did the uh, genetically modified plant. It was able to feed millions and millions of people at that time because now you're able to produce crops are going to survive and last longer. Now we're seeing. Oh, wait, it's going into the water streams. It's going to the earth, the waste. So where do you stand on that in terms of being able to feed more people as well as it's not good for the environment in a long-term point of view? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and to, to, to clarify, we're not only non-GMO, we're actually regenerative organic. Okay. So we go on beyond non-GMO. We're actually... That's I mean, great. for us, it's about con- conventional agriculture is just way too pesticide and synthetic fertilizer dependent. Synthetic nitrogen uh, takes like one to three percent of the world's entire energy output to produce in the Haber-Bosch process. It's incredibly uh, en- energy intensive, and and then it destroys soil. Basically, blasting this much synthetic fertilizer and pesticide, we're we're destroying the soil ecosystem and oxidizing all that life that's in the soil up into the atmosphere. So we need to look at our agricultural landscape is not just about producing nutrient dense food to feed a, a, a growing population, but then also like, you know, how can we sequester carbon from the atmosphere back into our soils um, at, at global scale? It's a number one carbon sink for, for, um, for carbon. And, um, you know, even more than reforestation, if you bring a depleted soil back to life through regenerative organic management, the amount of carbon you can sequester in that soil is enormous. And when you do that, you're also drought proofing the soil because now it can hold a whole lot more water. So when you have a big rain event, rather than it all going off, you know, taking all that topsoil and all the topsoil loss, that's another huge problem we've got. You're actually retaining that water. So it's, you know, you can basically farm in a much more uh, climate resilient way. Um, And as far as GMO, so, you know, the, 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 by far the number one genetically engineered trait is Roundup, uh, Roundup resistance. So Roundup is the world's number one weed killer. Um, so when you think about genetically engineered corn, corn, corn or soy and all our major food crops, when the, I mean, there's, uh, I think it's somewhat of a misnomer that genetic engineering is, is feeding the world. Um, the, basically what you're able to do with these crops is farm in a way that takes less knowledge and labor. Like you can just blast huge amounts of weed killer to control your weed pressure, which is obviously a huge problem when you farm. Um, but it's not, 
you know, it's not in and of itself boosting yields. It's just enabling you to kind of take care of your weeds by blasting way more weed killer than, than otherwise. But the problem, and basically every weed scientist that wasn't on Monsanto, Dow, or DuPont's payroll, that, you know, basically the pesticide industry has bought the seed industry in, in this country and globally to engineer our food crops to tolerate huge amounts of the weed killers that they sell, hmm. um, that when you, when you blast this much weed killer, you're going to inevitably create weed resistance. And that's exactly what's happened. So now you have all these like Roundup ready resistant weeds. So you can't kill them with Roundup anymore. And, and, and glyphosate is a chemical name. So now they're stacking genetic engineering. So now they're genetically engineering what's called their stacking resistance. So now they're stacking resistance to the Canva and 2,4-D. 2,4-D is one half of Agent Orange. That was a huge, you know, defoliant used in the Vietnam War. That's the, that was very toxic. Um, so we're blasting more and more and more toxic weed killer on our crops to bring them to harvest. And this is great for the chemical industry. This is exactly what they predicted. And, you know, they said, oh, this was never going to happen. Of course, it did happen. And we're paying them a whole lot more money for their chemicals that they're selling. And, and then we're saying, oh, then they're feeding the world with, with these crops. It's like, well, if you look at corn, Half of the corn crop is actually going into ethanol and this whole ethanol boondoggle. And then the balance is going to animal feed. I mean, there's very little corn is actually feeding anybody. It's mostly inefficiently being converted into animal energy and protein. Like you, like you, you know, depending on the animal, there's like a, you know, like a 10 times loss of the amount of protein and energy taking a, a plant and making it into an animal protein just from the you know metabolism and just the inefficiencies of that conversion. And, um, so I think it's something like only 18% of corn is used in any kind of food product. And most of that's corn syrup. Um, and then, you know, it's like hollow calories and then soy is something like 80% animal feed, very little soy is actually consumed for people. Hmm. So like, you know, if you farm regenerative organic, you know, you know, I would say, you, you know, if you look at like the kind of best studies out there, like you'll see a yield drop if you're not like blasting that much synthetic nitrogen year after year. You know, if you're actually taking care of your soils and producing sustainably and doing best regenerative practice, you can still replicate. You can get about, what's us say on average, about 80% of the yield out of a regenerative organic globe as you would out of like, you know, just I'm going to just turn on the, the chemicals and just, you know, I don't care what happens to the world. I'm just going to like maximize my calorie production per acre. Um, that, you know, and that 80%, if you like, scale down the amount of animals that are, you know, right now just inefficiently converting that in the animal protein, we like reduce that and simultaneously get rid of the ethanol boondoggle. Then there's, there's plenty of land and farming for producing the food that we can eat. That's not dependent on a bunch of toxic chemicals, you know, that's driving us off the climate change cliff, but it does, you know, it's basically about, you know, collective behavior change and enacting policies that incentivize us to eat more plant-based meals, less meat. And, you know, when you choose to eat animal products, eat it from a pasture-based operation where the animals are, you know, their fertility is actually part of a cycle and not part of a problem. You know, these huge manure lagoons, I mean, these factory farms are like, like burning oil wells. I mean, if you look at just the greenhouse gas emissions coming off of these factory farms of animals, like these animals in cages, I mean, it's crazy. But if you get the animals integrated into a, a proper cropping system, it's, you know, it's incredibly productive um, and, you know, humane, fair. And yeah, it's just, yeah, we can't eat meat and, you know, uh, you know, meat three times a day, but you, know, you can still, you know, eat plenty of meat 
and and uh, and feed the world. So I think it's a it's a question of just you know that yeah, and and you know that that agriculture is more than just producing food. It's you know it's about supporting sustainable livelihoods for farms and, and, and rural economies, mm. you know, taking care of the animals. Yeah. Um, but obviously, we need to feed the world, and yeah, and I find the whole GMO that that you know I mean the. I'm not like in principle against it. I think there are good examples in like insulin for diabetics. That's great. You know, mm-hmm. when you make, uh, you know, instead of taking cow pancreases and grinding them up to make insulin, you can just, you know, engineer E. coli to produce a whole bunch of insulin. Obviously that's good use of the technology and have zero problem with it. But, you know, the, just the, the, the real issue is that most of it, what, you know, like the, the feeding the world conversation in a way deflects from, the fact that what's really happening is they're engineering our crops or is this weed killer. Mm. And, you know, it's in a way it's like kind of distracting people from that's what they're doing. You know, a conversation that is like, yeah, it's not, you know, we can feed the world without this technology um, for sure. And I'm not opposed to technology in principle, but what it's actually doing, what's in the ground is horrible. They're, they're engineering resistance to weed killer. I mean, that's 90% of genetically engineered crop by acreage. So, you know, that's, so it's a nuanced issue and, um, you know, it's not that there's not examples that are good, but generally speaking, it's, you know, we have a, you know, the pesticide chemical yeah. industry is bought the seed industry and has captured yeah. our regulatory agencies. Yeah. So. Nuts. Well, I, I think it's really important that you share that too. And I think it's interesting times right now with this coronavirus. How is it, you know, something like this can create behavior change for people to buy, you know, bulks of toilet paper, of soap and things off of shelves in a week or two. Yet something that's so existential as climate change, which is going to kill more people and is killing more people in this year already, it has. It's almost like we're, uh, like you said, like it's it's just out of sight, out of mind. It's that, it's that far-sighted vision. So I want to stick on this theme. Um, we, we talked about, you talked about uh, agriculture, 70% of the world's food comes from smallholder farms, yeah. right? And that also consists of 70% of the world's poverty are smallholder farmers. It's an interesting asymmetry, it's an interesting dynamic. What have you found at Dr. Bronner's that has been effective in driving this behavior change to purchase your products or just be aware of what is going on in the world? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a really important point. And that, you know, all too often, um, you know, people like the, the cheap food that we're buying on this, you know, the American food basket is by far the cheapest in the world. And, but that's because we're basically externalized the costs of the environmental and social harms that comes with that really, really mm. cheap food. And I mean, I'm not talking about anybody who's like, you know, struggling at the poverty line. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not talking about um, making them pay more money, but you know, everyone who can afford to, I mean, really needs to be looking at carefully at fair trade certification in organic, because like you say, I mean, so many smallholder farms around the world, I mean, they're in the poverty trap. There's uh, a lot of uh, predatory intermediary brokers, you know, lending at like ridiculous interest rates, you know, finance crops like 30%. Mm, It's just, you know, it's a real struggle. And so that's, you know, that consciousness of fair trade. I mean, I rose around coffee and and cocoa, which have, you know, like really volatile commodity markets and 
small farmers are just routinely like getting screwed when the global prices would collapse below cost of production. And yeah, fair trade, it's basically about, you know, forming long-term stable trading relationships with your farmers and going to market in partnership. And, um, uh, and yeah, I think um, as far as promoting that consciousness, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm, we're in partnership with Patagonia, the big clothing company that's, uh, we're, we're uh, launching the regenerative organic standard. And it's basically taking organic as a baseline and then taking the top uh, pasture-based animal welfare criteria, top for labor criteria, top soil health criteria, and merging into one single standard that's going to be consumer-facing, like the USD organic program, but basically even better. Um, because USD organic is kind of like what you shouldn't do. You, you shouldn't do uh, use synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, but it's not saying what you should do. Like you should, you know, so, so regenerative organic is saying like, this is what you should be doing. And um, so we're, we're excited by this new seal, this new, uh, you know, there'll be a big consumer education campaign behind it. And yeah, we're, you know, it's, um, we're really trying to get consumers to realize that their plate is a, is a farm, their fork is a pitchfork, their knife is a butchering knife, like really taking responsibility for what does your farm look like? You know, really connect, like, does it look like a monoculture desert of, you know, genetically engineered weed, weed killer soap, you know, dead stuff? Or is it like a vibrant living ecosystem, you know, really, you know, diverse farm, like a whole lot of wildlife, biodiverse wildlife, you know, just like a real good farm is so beautiful. I mean, it's just a farming nature's image. There's a lot of complexity and diversity, you know, it's just birds are singing, you know, versus the monoculture deserts out in like Nebraska. It's just nuts. Wait a second. I'm, I'm putting two and two together right now. Are you in talks with Vincent Stanley at Patagonia at all? Or are you um, aware I of Vincent Stanley? I know, I, I know Rose and uh, the CEO, Rose, uh, Rose Macario, and then Phil Graves. Okay. Uh, I don't know a bunch of people over there, but I don't know Vincent. Yeah. Okay. Well, Vincent, he's been with Patagonia uh, since its inception and when it was uh, the hardware uh, climbing company. Uh, and he, had, I think he had mentioned he knew some people at Dr. Bronner's he wanted me to put in touch with because I live in San Diego. Uh, so it, we got to connect sometime too. We, we I may know Vincent. I, I'm like terrible with names. It, I, I it's it, yeah, it's so. okay. It's okay. But uh, regardless, we got to connect sometime on this. But I think there's an interesting parallel here because for people listening to this for the first time, uh, what what David's referring to is is, uh, is Patagonia's work with their supply chain. They cut so many suppliers out because they had visited their their farms, the, the areas where they were making the fabrics, the dyes in the water. They saw the birds dying on the side, farmers shooting the birds. And they said they didn't want to work with these companies. But it's that it's that social responsibility, that environmental responsibility that was integrated into their company, which has made them so successful. But what I'm trying to get to, David, is at the beginning of this podcast, you were talking about the vision of the company not being in in compare, not being really or pertaining to soaps. It was the one faith. It doesn't really pertain to soaps. And there was some debacle going back and forth with your family members. Now, do you think the mission of the company has to pertain to the product and the service that it's selling? Or do you think it has to uh, pertain to um, a social or environmental uh, ideology? Yeah, well, you know, I definitely both. And and, um, so uh, we've got our six uh, cosmic principles and, you know, it's basically kind of encompasses um, um, a lot, but 
but I like this triangle. My brother kind of out of nowhere about a year ago started talking about our triangle. I was like, what triangle? And, and he's like, okay, we got soap on one point and that symbolizes like running an efficient business, you know, delivering the best soap every time quality, you know, you're going to have the most amazing aromatherapeutic experience, you know, just all the traditional things you need to rock to deliver, you know, a, a, a good product, a good service, uh, you know, in, in a great way, you know, and if we're not doing that, then we're not generating profits. We're not able to do all the rest of the good stuff we want to do. And then soul. So you got soap and then you got soul. So soul's like, you know, like that, you know, that mission, like how are we making the world better? You know, in what way are we engaged in our community, you know, with a larger earth, you know, just what way are we just trying to leverage our profits to further benefit um, the larger ecosystem we're in. And, you know, and I think every company needs to be, you know, doing that. I think most companies at least need realize they need to look like they're doing that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, hopefully more and more companies are really, you know, dedicating themselves to the, you know, the triple bottom line, you know, the, you know, the, you know, profit, um, you know, social benefit and environmental benefit. And, um, but then joy is the other uh, point of the triangle, like just to have a good time while you're doing it. Um, my dad, that foam that I, I referenced is so ecstatic. It's so fun to blast foam on each other. And we have a whole event marketing department that their whole mission is to just blast foam on people. Um, and, uh, and that's a symbol of just generally having a good time in life and making sure, uh, you know, you know, so you got to make a great product, good service, you know, do good in the world, but then also have a good time doing it. I think those are the three, three essential things. It's the, it's the all faith Trinity right there. Yeah. There we go. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's cool stuff. So now for you personally, I know I want to get back to this, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, your activist efforts, uh, into cannabis as well as into, uh, uh, uh psilocybin. Yeah. Uh, why, why go into these, um, why, why try to promote these, these natural ingredients. Why try to go into this space? You know, I I had a, a this conversation with the late and great, you know, Paul Stamets uh, back yeah. in August, uh, and he was saying, you know, uh, psilocybin. Well, it, it's a it's one you can't ban a species. They were here longer than we were, and then two, it's a harm reduction tool. We are paying. I, I just wrote it down. Uh, we are paying so much money in taxes for his son. His son's in prison right now for his son to be in prison. Uh, you know, what, what harm would it be to give one of, you know, a member of our society, one of these, um, natural substances to reduce the, uh, you know, the, uh, the chances of someone in our, our culture to uh, commit a crime. It's an interesting point. So, and, and for your research, uh, that you've done in this, what have you found and what do you think the long-term benefits could be of psilocybin? Yeah. So, you know, psilocybin, that's the active ingredient in, in magic mushrooms. Um, okay. And it's what's referred to as, a, you know, one of the classic hallucinogens, uh, along with LSD, um, and is like uh, incredibly powerful. At um, So, uh, you know, there's different levels to this, but, you know, therapeutically um, can really help, um, you know, people who are really depressed and experience a lot of trauma. You know, pretty much everyone on earth has experienced some level of trauma, and, you know, some of us a lot, a lot of trauma. Um, and, and when you've been traumatized slash socialized in whatever way is like, what's to say you have a father that beat the shit out of you or you didn't have a father and you just came up on the streets and, 
you know, it's just that these are just, you're just been damaged in like really powerful ways and, you know, behavior patterns later in life, you know, you can just have really self-destructive thoughts and the ways you look at yourself in a deep, you know, way that you're not conscious about and the way you act out on that, you know, maybe it's through addiction to, you know, really hard opiates or, you know, you're in turn beating your wife or, you know, just, just the ways of cycle of trauma and abuse like perpetuate. And uh, these, these psychedelic medicines that, you know, like, you know, mushrooms, uh, you know, that came out of the Mazatec Indians in, in, in southern Mexico and these, uh, you know, uh, peyote and, and, and iboga. Um, there's these indigenous ways of healing and relating. They can just really help people process like deep trauma and deep, deep suffering, um, you know, really kind of heal uh, in a really deep way and, you know, stop being antisocial like just really like what what is the what's what's going on in there and like you know you just kind of activate this inner healing process and oftentimes like you get into a real spiritual level like you really get in touch with like this benevolence and love that permeates existence that is quite amazing and and uh, mystery um but you know somehow in the midst of all of it that's the truth and so that these uh, these plant medicine allies can really tap us in to that real healing, magical love and um, awaken in us like a, a, a care and a compassion for each other and for the planet. So I think, um, you know, Paul's idea there that, you know, you know, helping our, our, our brothers and sisters inside prison who are often the most traumatized among us to, you know, really have access to these therapies. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, but the rest of us, I mean, you know, I mean, all of us can, can use a lot of help with just the difficulties and struggles of life. And, um, these are just like amazing, um, just uh, amazing medicines and they need to be approached responsibly. I think that's, what's been missing a little bit in our culture is like, when you look at an indigenous culture, you never, ever like take them and, you know, just go to a concert. And I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. I mean, that can be a very powerful, beautiful experience, but that can also go sideways and it's very distracting, mm. but you know, like if you're in a, you know, but when you, when you set your intention, you make sure you're with somebody who's experienced and you're, you minimize the distractions and you can really go in where you really prepare yourself. You know, I want to, you know, I really want to be better. I want to touch in with love. I want to, I want to understand my family and I want to honor my dad and I want to, you know, you set your intentions in this really conscious way. It's just really amazing what um you know just the power of healing and um i don't know connection and reconnection to nature and to yourself and and each other so you know in a way i feel like it's the most on point with my granddad's cosmic vision of unity on earth and um like i, I really feel that widespread integration responsible integration of psychedelic therapy um can really help people um overcome their um prejudice you know like kind of the fears and anxieties and the uh, tendencies that demonize immigrants and other people you know and, and just kind of create a more compassionate citizenry that can enact more you know progressive policies that can right. you know just help us all be better right so, and I think there's an interesting, again, another another parallel there in terms of I, Paul was trying to make the case and I'm probably going to botch this, but he was trying to say, you know, I'd like to rewrite Darwinian theory. It's not about 
the survival of the fittest. It's about uh, basically the, the the common people, the common good in a, a community. It's how community survives that passes on traits to the next generation. It's a collective effort back to our collective leadership. Um, and I think that really resonates with me for what you're saying today with everything you're doing for your stakeholders, for the the fair wages, for those people, for the soils, uh, for the supply chain, for your distribution, for the messaging, the vision, all of those components, the trinity, the joy, the soap, the soul, all of those components are working together simultaneously. And it's just, a, it's just an interesting parallel between there. You know, I, I wonder if there's just something to that, whether we're in business or in, in life. Yeah, um, absolutely, man. I think it's, that's a collaborative vision. Um, you know, uh, you know, Darwin is, I guess, evolution operates, you know, not solely on competition, but also cooperation. And obviously the you know, humanity, like forming these deep social bonds and be able to cooperate um, is in key. And I think it's just about, uh, overcoming a tribal mindset where there's another outside, you know, either you're inside our tribe or you're outside, but that recognizing the whole earth is our tribe and just, you know, just kind of like getting us to there, um, is I think a big piece of it. But, uh, but yeah, man, all working together. They're all in cahoots. So, This is the question I really wanted to ask you today. And now it means a completely different thing to me. But to you, what makes a good soap? Uh, Well, I guess at the, you know, basic physical chemistry level, um, you know, it's all about a high lathering oil. Uh, So what's called a loric, a high loric oil, um, which means a saturated. So all oils are um, triglycerides. You have a glycerin backbone and three fatty acids. Uh, and the length of those fatty acids and the amount of double bonds um, makes the different qualities of oil. So, uh, you know, beef fat versus olive oil, you know, it's all about the spread, the kind of fatty acids that are in the, the triglyceride. Um, so coconut um, is a high loric oil and, and loric is a 14 carbon chain saturated, no double bond. It's very high lathering um, and really good cleanser in even hard water. And then, uh, but it can be a little harsh. Whereas then olive oil is, is like a, a longer carbon chain, an 18 carbon chain with a, with a, a, a double bond. And that uh, translates to a much more emollient, smooth, moisturizing lather. Um, and then hemp seed oil is a, a 18 carbon chain, but then it has a bunch of fatty acids that are two or even three double bonds. And so it's even more emollient. So it's all about like basically kind of getting the right balance of, of, of high lather cleansing and emollient smoothness. So I think we do a real good job of like really getting the balance right so that you're, you know, you have a really effective soap as far as cleansing and getting you and your, your house clean, but then it's also very smooth and emollient, you know, not, uh, not super drying afterfeel. It's like a very, you know, smooth moisturizing afterfeel. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's, you know, and what makes a bad soap is, you know, just a lot of cheap tallow, beef tallow and uh, being used instead of like a olive oil, um, and, uh, and then a lot of quote unquote liquid soaps aren't even soap. They're just detergents. They're just like complete schlock. So, well, I, yeah. Well, I'm not, again, you know, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I had this epiphany, like you had this epiphany. I've been struggling with calling a business as a force for good. It's common terminology in our space, uh, in the sustainable social impact space, the conscious uh, capitalism space. 
And it's, I struggle with that because I think, you know, like I'm a capitalist. I think a lot of businesses are good. Every business is good if it's helping people. But this after this conversation, when I asked you what a good soap is, to me, you know, the molecules and the chemicals are great. But to me, what's a good soap is everything that is like what we said, everything that's concerted, everything that's collectively into that soap. It's, yeah, it's the right fair on. trade. It's all those things. And those chemicals, I know exactly where they're coming from. And I know exactly what good they're doing in the community and, and for the rest of the world on this big, like you said, this one faith, this one earth. That's what I think a good business is. And I've never said that before. I've always been against saying that. But I think, you know, I really resonate through this conversation today. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, right on. Man. And uh, yeah, we actually term it constructive capitalism. Uh, oh, you did? You know, we're, we're not against capitalism, but we're against it per se. We're against, you know unconscious capitalism yeah. you know but when it when it's when it's conscious and constructive you know you can do amazing things so um yeah so david from from all of our conversations today uh you know we unpacked a lot today about the history talked a lot about uh the 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 one religion trinity the concerted effort climate change the 2040 vision from all of this today um let's bring this full circle what is your definition of a real leader yeah i think um you know kind of able to uh, set a vision and inspire people to kind of you know to execute on it um help uh i guess identify the right team um, you know, help uh, smooth out the rough edges and enable full team flow to like accomplish something that none of us individually could ever do. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, inspire and, um, uh, you know, manage in a, in, a, in a light way, you know, leave from behind kind of thing. You know, just delegate, kind of getting a Sakan style. You dele- delegate a lot of power to his cons. We got some pretty powerful uh, directors and, uh, you know, just make sure they're, they're rocking and kind of checking in. And But, you know, setting a vision where everyone is so invested in that shared vision and mission that um, they can get out of our people something that is very unique. Um, Give it yeah. the joy. Anyways. Yeah, right on, man. There we go. Well, Dave, I appreciate your time coming on the Real Leaders Podcast today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, you know, we didn't know where this conversation was going to go today, and I'm glad it went exactly where it was because that's the only way it could have done it today. Um, so I just want to appreciate your time coming back on the, the Real Leaders Podcast. For David Bronner, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, David. Appreciate you. Right on. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Man. All right, good people, and thanks for tuning in to this episode today of the Real Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to start receiving notifications of this podcast. And for the lucky listeners today, you are going to walk away with a free magazine. Go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and enter in coupon code PODCAST25. That's going to give you... 25% off your quarterly subscription, i.e. you're getting one magazine for free a day. And, and, well, if you're not a reader, if you're a visual learner, check out our new YouTube channel where you can find all of these podcasts. It's just at Real Leaders Magazine. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.